Does the language we speak shape the way we think? These are the Kuktaer people. They live in Pomporao, at the very west edge of Cape York. In Kuktaer, they don't use words like left and right, and instead everything is in cardinal directions: north, south, east, and west. And when I say everything, I really mean everything. You would say something like, "Oh, there's a, an ant on your southwest leg," uh, or "Move your cup to the north northeast a little bit." In fact, the way that you say hello in Kuktaer is, "Which way are you going?" And the answer should be. North, northeast, in the far distance. How about you? People who speak languages like this stay oriented really, really well. They stay oriented better than we used to think humans could.、Uh, we used to think that humans were worse than other creatures because some biological excuse. Oh, we don't have magnets in our beaks or in our scales. No. If your language and your culture trains you to do it, actually, you can do it. Lots of languages have grammatical gender, so every noun gets assigned a gender, often masculine or feminine. And these genders differ across languages. Could this have any consequence for how people think? Actually, it turns out that's the case. So, if you ask German and Spanish speakers to say describe a bridge, like the one here, bridge happens to be、uh, grammatically feminine in German, grammatically masculine in Spanish. German speakers are more likely to say bridges are beautiful, elegant, these stereotypically feminine words. Whereas Spanish speakers will be more likely to say they're strong or long, these masculine words. Languages also differ in how they describe events. In English, it's fine to say he broke the vase. In、uh, a language like Spanish, you might be more likely to say the vase broke or the vase broke itself. If it's an accident, you wouldn't say that someone did it. In English, quite weirdly, we can even say things like I broke my arm. Now, in lots of languages, you couldn't use that construction unless you are a lunatic and you went out looking to break your arm and you succeeded. People who speak different languages will pay attention to different things depending on what their language usually requires them to do, and that has, gives you the opportunity to ask, "Why do I think the way that I do? How could I think differently?" And also, what thoughts do I wish to create? And so that is our setup for this morning's sermon and talk. Thinking about the words you're speaking, the language, and how it shapes you. This morning we are finishing up a series on communication basics for Christians. And so I'm glad you're here today.、Um, if you're new here, my name is Shell. I'm the lead pastor here at Pilgrim Church.、Um, I'm also an immigrant to Canada and、uh, pretty new here as, as well. So. Um, I'm learning how to speak Canadian still, so occasionally I'll say some things that you'll be like, "What? What?、Uh, where did he learn that?" Donald Trump. Yes, everyone in the states has learned everything from. Yeah. <laughs> so this morning, the video that we looked at—if、uh, you missed that first slide because it kind of went up really quick—there's Lyra Borodisky, and she is a、um, cognitive scientist and professor, known for her research in the field of languages. And obviously, we've spent the last two Sundays talking about Christian、uh, views about the power of our words. These messages are online. I encourage you to listen to them if you were not here or listen again.、Uh, last Sunday, we talked specifically about some aspects of applying it in terms of conflict and personal peacemaking.、Uh, Matthew 18 and Matthew 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about how our language as Christians is different. That Christ comes to not only save us from sin, but also give us a different way of communicating and how we handle conflict. 
I feel like my mic is getting softer and softer. And should I just shout? Okay, all right. Give me a little more. I don't want to want them to fall asleep in the back there. I'm worried about uh, you know. I don't want Noah to, to you know take a nap back there. So. And so Lena, uh, or Lyra, her name is, uh, gives this. And one of the things that she argues for, she says that her research has given new, uh, new uh, insights and also has raised the questions about how the way we speak actually shapes the way we think. And as believers, we've been arguing something very similar from Scripture, that what we speak, what we meditate on, what we spend time with actually shapes the way we think. That in Christ, you are given uh, the, uh, the, the power by his spirit dwelling within you to speak differently and to respond differently to things around you according to what God is doing. And that to avoid this or to ignore this is to miss something very powerful and forming about our faith. One reason why we gather in worship to sing songs to God is not only to declare that Jesus is Lord and that all the kingdoms of this world are passing away and one day he will come again and his kingdom will come fully. Certainly we declare that in our worship and our singing and in our prayers and in teaching and preaching and proclamation. But we're also learning to speak differently about ourselves, about our world, about brokenness, and being blessed, we're learning a language of the kingdom of heaven, uh, which can be translated into every tongue and every language there is on earth, but we learn to speak differently because of Jesus. And so there is power when we gather in what we're learning from one another and in our small groups that we're actually learning to be an alternative community in the midst of the place where God has placed us on this earth, that we might speak forth his goodness, his love, and his redeeming power in people's lives, that the final word belongs to God and not to men and women. And so this morning, let's look at a few verses here that have been series of verses, and then we're going to pray. Are you awake today? Okay, I'm, I'm, I think you've got some summer fuzzy brain, so I need you to, I need you to, to dial in here this morning, dear, dear church. Some key verses that we've been talking about in this series, and I'm going to read them from my notes here. Proverbs 18.21, which is wisdom literature in the Old Testament, sometimes called the Older Testament or the Hebrew Bible. But Proverbs 18.21 says this, The tongue has the power of life and death. Those who love it will eat its fruit. That is both a, a telling us some truth about our words can bring life or they can bring death, and that we will eat its fruit. What we do with our words, we will reap them. James 1.26 from the New Testament says this, Those who consider themselves religious and you do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and the religion is worthless. And then finally, the other series verse that we've been using, Luke 6.45 says this, The good person out of the good treasury, or another translation would say out of the abundance of the heart, out of the abundance, the overflow That which you have been building up in your heart, what you've been feeding yourself, whether it's scripture, the movies you watch, the music you listen to, the conversations you have, the words that you repeat in secular liturgies that we go over and over again in our culture or in worship, these things out of the abundance, the overflow of the heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasury produces evil, for the mouth speaks what fills his heart. So one of the scandalous claims of Christianity is that our hearts need to be saved and redeemed and that God gives us the power through Jesus' life, teachings, death, and resurrection in order to change the orientation of our heart and that 
This is not a one-time thing. We receive the grace and salvation, but we continue to train and shape the desires of our heart. And out of that comes what, what is there. And so if you want to know where you're at in terms of what's forming you the most, how is your speech? What are you saying? What are you thinking? What are you meditating on? These things are what's going on deep inside of you. They tell you something about what's going on in your heart. And our hearts, we're told also, can be deceitful. And so we constantly need to bring them before the Lord and let them soak in his grace and be shaped by him. And so the main idea here this morning that I want you to grasp is we live in a tension between who we are becoming in Christ or who Christ has declared us to be and who we are right now. We live in the tension between how we are right now and what we are becoming. And in fact, Paul uses the language uh, Sometimes in his teachings, he's challenging the churches to become what you already are, which seems like a really weird statement. Become what you already are, because we are in process. The New Testament uses language like, when you receive Jesus Christ, you are saved from brokenness and shame and sin, and, and whichever part of that the Holy Spirit speaks into your life and draws you into Christianity, uh, that you are being saved, you have been saved in the cross of Christ in the past, you are being saved. And you will be saved, this ongoing sense of progress in life in the Christian journey. And so there's a truth of the moment right now and a truth that we are being formed into. One of the principles in Scripture talks about this idea of the seed and harvest. Unless a seed dies, it won't bear fruit. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. In the seed is the potential for amazing new life. And so that seed is living in the tension, and what do we do with it? Are we, are we cultivating it? Are we planting it in good soil? And so this idea of how our, our world is shaped. Again, we need words to speak and to pray about what's, what we are being formed into. What are you confessing? What do you meditate on? What do you listen to? All of these are shaping your world. And even in Lerna's discussion, from a secular Cognitive science concept, they're coming to this idea that languages actually shape our reality and our perception of reality and our orientation to the world. So think about that. You say, well, I'm not ready to learn any more languages. I learned English. I learned whatever other language. Uh, but as a kingdom person, have you learned the language of the kingdom of God? Or are you still speaking the language of the old empire? So this is our challenge this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you're doing in this church. And God, thank you for your desire to bring about new life in us and through us. That in Christ we are told that we are to get a new center that is the love of God. And that it displaces the center of other gods, whether they be uh, our, our, our circumstances of education, our family, our cultural heritage, all those things are matter, but they are not to be the ultimate thing, but your love is. And when that becomes our center, everything else can begin to flourish and begin to experience new health and life and correction where needed. So God, we come here today knowing that that's true in our minds or at least wrestling with it if we're curious about Christianity, but now some practical things about how does that manifest. And it manifests through our thoughts and the words that we use and we meditate upon so continue to work in this house, we pray in Jesus' name. And if you will, say amen. 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 I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but I want to revisit this maybe two weeks ago. Um, 
in our cultures, sometimes we talk about the idea of there's optimists and there's pessimists and there's realists. Optimists, sort of our, our popular understanding is someone that uh, just, a, just always puts on a cheery face, fake it till you make it, uh, everything is fine. I mean, the whole building could be on fire and they're like, you know, if I was an optimist, I'd be like, but yeah, it's an opportunity to rebuild and, and redesign, right? Yeah. Uh, optimist. Pessimist. The building's on fire. We need to get out. The whole thing's awful. Uh, everything's going to die. The world is coming to an end, you know. Okay, that's not that bad. <laughs> Realist, the building's on fire, call the fire department, deal with it, there's insurance, move on with life. Um, We think a lot of us will say, well, I'm a realist, I just want to name things as they are, but I'm a person, and remember, I preach this series to myself as much as to you, uh, in any sermon, really. The problem with realism is that it doesn't really deal with reality, it deals with your particular perspective at that particular moment, but as a Christian, it doesn't take in God's perspective it doesn't take in the perspective of the community of faith, and so we always have to sort of check that, well, I'm just a realist. And then when we look at what the Bible tells us to do with our words and our thoughts, we're called to some sort of wild hope rooted in God's work in our midst, even if we can't see it in the natural physical world yet. And so the challenge is to move beyond this whole grid of pessimism, realism, optimism into thinking in kingdom ways and speaking in kingdom ways, naming things as they are, but also naming them as God desires, understanding that in using that language, you begin to affect change in the spirit, which will impact the natural world. You don't just give up at the category of realism. You move beyond in Christ. So Jesus told them another parable in Matthew 13. And he said this, Matthew 13, 31, he gave them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. I love this story, this parable that Jesus said. A man took and sowed in his field, and it's the smallest of seeds, the parable says, but when it is growing, it is the greatest garden plant and becomes a tree so that the wild birds come and nest in its branches. He told them another parable, and he said, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God or the reign of God is like yeast that a woman took and mixed with three measures of flour until all the dough had risen. Jesus uses parables in one way to jar us into thinking differently about the work of the kingdom of God and God's work within our lives. Even though from a in-the-moment realist perspective, a little bit of yeast and a seed won't do much, from the larger perspective, it changes and it grows. The plant grows and it becomes this large bush thing that, that uh, uh, you know, birds can come and nest in, as it tells us in the parable, or yeast that the dough rises. And this little thing, this little flower becomes something carbolicious and that we desire deeply good bread and meets our needs. And so he tells us this parable this morning and he uses this to explain to us that the kingdom is like that. What kind of parables are we telling? What kind of stories are we telling as a church about God's goodness? Do we remember in our DNA the good things that the Lord has done in our past and how he took a little yeast, how he took a little seed, how he took one little talent of money and how he multiplied it and did great things? When you begin to tell the stories of God's goodness, it actually changes how you think now about your life and about the church and the future. So this morning, if you're following along the outline, number two, we're going to move into, those are sort of our opening thoughts. Number two is this idea of speaking creatively. Let's drill a little deeper into that idea this morning about speaking creatively. Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.13 speaks about believing first 
and it changing his heart and then his words. Good theology starts with believing in order to understand. I believe it was Athanasius that said that, or Anselm rather, that he believed in order to understand, that we enter into the experience of the thing and we understand it better as we continue in the experience. I, as a believer, I worship initially when I became a Christian because I was seeing that around me in the church and it seemed that some people were having an encounter with something beyond just simply singing lyrics. And so I entered into the experience and as I do that, it begins to change how I experience it, my emotions and my thoughts and using these words, it, it reorders something. So there's power in that. And so Paul says, uh, it's interesting, the language he used, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written... I believed and so I spoke. He said, we also believe and so we also speak. That the belief in Christ begins to alter the speech that we have and we begin to declare who he is and it begins to change something within us. All of, many of us want to reverse it. We want to understand everything before we act, before we confess, before we speak out, before we do those things that can alter us. But it's, a tr- it's really a lie. You never really fully understand anything before you make a decision. You never really fully understand anything before you make a decision. You can't know all the variables. You can't know all of the things that are involved. I trust that when the city of Vancouver put a stop sign out there on the street corner, uh, that, that they analyzed enough of the variables that I can trust them as an authority, at least as far as putting up stop signs most days, that they did a decent job of that. And so in our lives, we often do things where we take those, those steps of faith and our plausibility in reaching forward. So Jesus tells us, Again, in Luke 6.45, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the overflow of the heart. And so the challenge I have for you today is what is filling your heart? What are you inwardly digesting? What are you consuming spiritually and attitude-wise? The one place where grace and truth and work meet up is in what we do with our thoughts and our speech. Philippians 4.8 says this, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, hear this this morning, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. If I meditate upon destruction, if I meditate upon all of the things going sideways in the world, if I meditate upon what is broken all of the time, that begins to color my vision of the world. I begin to look at everything in dark and dire terms, and it begins to paralyze my ability to use my say-so to make a difference in the world. As a church, we are also called to focus on where is the Holy Spirit moving in our midst? What can we celebrate? Where do we see good things happening? Where are the green shoots shooting up out of the fallow soil? Where is God moving? This begins to change how a community of faith functions within its community. What are the things that we see God doing and we can cultivate in this place? Finally, whatever, true, noble, right, pure, lovely, whatever's admirable, excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. We have a role to play in ordering our thoughts. You say, you're kind of beating this point. Yes, I am, absolutely. Because as often as we hear it, we read last two weeks ago, James tells us that so often we default to the kingdom of the world ways of thinking and speaking. Again, Brueggemann, Walter Brueggemann, talks about this importance of prophetic and holy imagination that 
We do not look at the givens around us of the empires that we live in and say that they have the final word. As people who confess Jesus as Lord, that is a prophetic uh, saying that says there's another thing at work in the world beyond simply what I see in this moment, something that transcends the current reality I may be facing. And so I want to go into that reality with new strength But I'm not going to find that strength in my circumstance. I need to get outside of my circumstance. And to get outside of my circumstance, I go to the scriptures and I go to worship and I go uh, to my experience of God. And in that, I can be empowered with a power outside to come into the circumstance differently and see things in a new light. And so when we learn to think and speak and act in a Christian way of the new language of the kingdom, it's giving us power to come back into our circumstance differently and empowered by God's Spirit. This is important if you want to see your life changed. If you're not seeing anything change in your Christian experience, my question is, what are you feeding yourself? What are you shaping? Where are you going outside of your circumstance to be formed to enter back into it in a new way? When we gather in worship, we are pulling out of the normal ways and patterns of our world, and we are finding resource beyond in the spirit and in the imagination and the art and in the word to go back into the rest of our life in a new way, empowered differently. There is power in what we do when we gather. What we repeat, what we listen to, what we observe, the language we use, what we meditate on, all of these are shaping us. They are shaping your loves and your desires and your heart. They're giving you something. So what is there? The enemy, I might add, before we get into the sort of the practical takeouts, the enemy, I might add, doesn't want you to think about this. The enemy would rather that you stay numb, dumb, and blind, sorry not to be offensive, but to the idea that you have authority over your thought patterns, your speech patterns. The enemy wants you to to look at the world around you and say, what is, 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 that's it. He wants you to look at the things around you, the givenness, as some theologians or philosophers would say, of the things around you, and just assume that's all there is. The enemy wants you locked into that perspective. But the kingdom wants you to begin to think imaginatively. The Holy Spirit wants to break in and to give you this idea that in this faculty that the Lord has given you, that you can imagine things elsewise, that that's not just make-believe, but that's a source of kingdom power. And when you have that and you enter back into the life, you can look at that and say, that's not a given. I'm not going to buy into whatever the empire around me tells me, I see that there's another thing afoot. There's another possibility. There's a different angle. There's a different way to process this and to work through this. The enemy doesn't want you to tap into that resource. So beginning to exercise and use those muscles of creativity and holy imagination matter. So let me give you three practical ways as we look at the last part here, and this will be a little shorter today, but three practical ways to to apply this in your life. And there are more than three, but I'm going to give you three that are pretty overlapping and broad. The first practical application is confessing the promises of God over your life. Real simple. Confess just means to speak the same thing, to speak the same thing in agreement. And in this case, confessing what God has said about you. If you've never done this, this may be awkward and strange to you, but that's okay. Everything that new is, it's you just break out of it and say, let me take a risk. I'm going to take a step of faith into this. One of those powerful things I learned as a young believer was to confess what God says about who I am and who he is over my life and even do it out loud. And a thousand Canadians died. 
No, Canadians were doing this long ago as well. (laughs) Using your faculties to speak who God is and who he says you are is one practical way to begin to exercise holy imagination. And as you confess those things, you may not always feel it. You may not always sense it. But you begin to speak it and you begin to live into that as if it were true. And so this morning, I want to invite you in your newsletter this morning, you should have received a little insert that says this, who I am in Christ. Would you pull that out just for a second? We're going to do a real practical example this morning. If you can share and you don't have one, look on with your neighbor, but it was in your newsletter as you came in today. Does everyone have one of these? You're going to need it. If not, flag down uh, whoever. It's inside your newsletter this morning. We're going to do some work. Like, I came to church and you're going to make me work? Well, you'll survive, trust me. The first thing you can learn to do is confess the promises of God over your life. Now, we're not going to read all of these together, but we're going to read several of them together today. So quickly grab one of these. Hold it up so you can see it. The font may be small. Uh, If you need to get your glasses on, do that. If you're older, if you need to do whatever, I don't know. But uh, we're going to read just a few of these this morning, and I'd like us to read them out loud together. Are you with me? Okay. We're just going to read number one here. I'll read slowly, but read it with me. And I'm not going to read the scripture reference, but just the sentence. I have been healed. I am the salt of the earth. I am the light of the world. I'm commissioned to make disciples. I'm a child of God. I have eternal life. I have been given peace. I am part of the true vine, a channel of Christ's life. I am clean. I am Christ's friend. I am chosen and appointed by Christ to bear his fruit. I have been given glory. I have been justified, completely forgiven, and made righteous. A few more. I died with Christ and died to the power of sin's rule over my life. I am a slave of righteousness. I am free from sin and enslaved to God. I am free forever from condemnation. And we'll end with this one. I am a son or daughter of God. God is spiritually my father. If you begin to confess these things over you, it's going to change how you think about the power he's given you, your say-so in your life, and who you are. And you begin to realize that God declares these things over all that he has made. And the challenge, of course, is that we help people connect with that and to realize and to enter into that and to come back to the Father to experience that relationship. So the first application this morning is learn to confess the promises of God over your life. I'm a son or daughter of God. God is my father. I'm a joint heir with Jesus Christ. I receive my inheritance. I am more than a conqueror through Christ who loves me. I have faith. I have been sanctified and called to holiness. I have been given grace in Jesus Christ. I've been placed into Christ by God's doing. I have received God's spirit into my life that I might know things freely given to me by God. I have been given the mind of Christ. I am a temple of the Holy Spirit in which he dwells. For I was bought with a price. I am no longer my own, but I belong to Jesus. Speak these things over yourself. Go lock yourself in a closet with a flashlight. 
Do what you need to do, but begin to declare these things. This begins to shape and deform you as a believer. You begin to learn the language of the kingdom by confessing the word of God, and one of the best ways to start is to confess what he says about you when you are walking in Jesus Christ. The second practical application this morning as we wind this series down is imagine the world with God as king and his love as the center and learn to start telling that story. Part of it is learning to tell a better story than the stories that you're hearing all around you. Part of it is understanding that God is at work in the world by his spirit, and we begin to lean into that, read about testimonies, hear about how people have been chained, uh, changed by God's grace. Sam Chan, in his book, Evangelism in a Skeptical World, talks about learning to tell your own story, that you begin to engage And being part of your neighbor's lives, listen to their stories. And when you've learned the right, tell your story as well. And it's very simple learning, who you, stating who you are and what was your mission and, and, and how you tried to achieve this stuff in your own strength. But Jesus then enters into the picture of your story. And what has Jesus done for you? And how you decided to follow him? And then what's going on now in that Learning to tell your story as well. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on number two, but imagining the world with God as king and then your part and your story in that. Maybe you were raised in the church and you begin to talk about that. But you never knew that love of God personally. You took it for granted. And you begin to tell that story. And as you went off on your own, you realized that there was something in that And you yearn for it, and you didn't know if you could come back. And like the prodigal son, you realize that the father's arms were always open. And one day you realize, I need that love. I, what I've been searching for everywhere else I had all along, I needed to return to the father. And you learn to tell your story. Maybe you were not raised in Christianity. Maybe you're an atheist or another religious path. And your mission was to get your identity out of becoming a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer or an artist, and you pursued those things, but they always left you empty, and you encountered and you said, if there's anything out there, come. I, I want to know if there's anything out there, if there's any God, anything out there. And maybe in that, you received a message from someone, a billboard, the next day, <laughs> Jesus loves you. Maybe an image of Jesus, maybe an encounter. You tell your story. Tell your story, find your story, put it in a narrative arc and begin to understand that and rehearse that and find ways to share that. So the first one is confess the promises of God over life. The second one is imagine the world with God as king and his love at center. And third and finally, I want to talk about one that will stretch some of you, is the use of images. I want to say that I think too many Christians cede the visual territory of our minds far too much. That in Scripture, imagery is used for God. Yes, we are not to make graven images and worship an idol. If you're worshiping the image, you've gone too far and you've missed the point. The image is to be a window to God. But think about this. The authors of Scripture give us spirit-inspired ways of seeing God. In Psalm 23, it says this, that he is a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Now, God is not literally a shepherd. You don't create an image of a shepherd to worship it, but you can picture God as a shepherd, that he is my shepherd, I shall not want. That psalm is laden with imagery. He leads me beside still waters. 
He anoints my head with oil. He prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. Well, goodness and mercy are not words that are chasing you down, literally, but it's imagery that he allows us to connect with God and reorders our emotions and our thoughts and speaks to that. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of God forever. Isaiah 40, the good shepherd I like how the prophet also says, He who watches over Israel neither slumbers not nor sleeps. God doesn't literally sleep. He doesn't need to sleep. But this idea that while I am asleep, he is working and he is watching and he is working out his will in my life. In 2 Samuel and in Psalms 18, all kinds of Psalms, God is described as a mighty rock or a fortress. Some of you in worship need to use your images as well as your words. If you want to have a living encounter with God and your kingdom language begins to shape, your kingdom images also need to change. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. That's imagery. Get a picture in worship sometimes when we're singing about God's sovereignty and God's order in the universe of a strong rock out there in the sea, buffeted by the waves, but it is immovable. He is my rock. He is my shelter. He is my fortress. He is the one in whom I trust. If you want your faith to come alive, you've got to bring order to your words, to your thoughts, and to your images. Do not assume the givens of the world and the liturgy, the secular liturgies that encounter us, we encounter every day. Understand these images. Isaiah 9, 6 and 66, 8 says, He is a caring father. Isaiah 49, 15 and 65, 23 and Matthew 23, 37, God is also pictured, and this will blow your mind, some of you Baptists, He's also a nurturing mother, but it's in the scripture. In your imagination, Maybe vividly picture the kind shepherd holding you, his sheep, near to his heart. Now, he's not literally a shepherd, and you're not literally a sheep, but the use of this imagery can change your prayer and worship experience. In fact, I find that people who pray with most authority and most joy and emotion and worship that way, if you ask them generally, they will talk about, they have a picture of something in their mind. It may be as simple as the cross that many churches have an instrument of torture and execution that has become a sign of grace and love and redemption. Some of us let our enemy run all over our imagination all the time. Maybe you're dealing with nightmares. Maybe you're dealing with pornography addictions. Maybe you're dealing with uh, anything else, a picture of a broken family, and you begin to picture Jesus and the powerful light of the Christ entering into your mind's eye. Hebrews says this, that we uh, are to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, that there is something about empowering the imagery that God has given us, a holy faculty that changes our experience of Christ. So don't let the enemy, don't cede all the territory of your imagination to the enemy. When you see your neighbor with the bigger house or a shinier car, don't cede all that imagery to the enemy. You don't know what else is going on in the picture. But begin to confess who you are. Begin to see Christ in your life and in your mind's eye. We are told, again, fix your eyes on Jesus, Hebrews 12, verse 2. And then Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, 
are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. There is an actual practice of meditating on Christ and getting a picture of who he is. And it really doesn't matter in terms of Jesus, well, how Jewish did he look? You know, Middle Eastern, African, you know, it doesn't matter. Your Jesus can be, uh, he can be the, the, the fake white Northern European Jesus, or he can, there's a funny BBC ad about that, by the way. He can be Jesus from Africa. He can be Jesus from Asia. That's not the important part, but about his character and his kindness and his gentleness and his authority. That's what matters in the imagery of Jesus, by the way. Because Jesus came for all of us. <laughs> Amen? And so how you picture it, if you picture him as a shepherd, let the Holy Spirit guide that. But when it's guided by the Spirit, it's going to line up with his character as revealed in the Gospels and we experience in the New Testament. He said, all we with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. That may just be glorious light emanating forth out of the cross, uh, being transformed into his image. It's about the character that you're experiencing in those times of focusing on Jesus. We can rest gazing upon the face of Jesus, the glory of Christ, the cross of Jesus. You say, oh, that's hard for me. Other Christians have a little less problem with that, Orthodox, Catholic, others. For Baptists, we tend to, I mean, about as crazy as we get traditionally is we have colored windows in the, you know, watch out. Maybe the blue is like the color of glory for Baptists. I don't know. I'm still learning. But get an image of blue light in the cross. I don't know. (laughs) But... Uh, this idea of these things that we shape it, we're formed by that. Our words, what we meditate on, what we see, what we allow the Holy Spirit to impress. It says, in the, in, in the end times, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your, your, your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Those are visual categories of holy imagination that will propel you and empower you to live differently. I'm not making this up. It's right there in Acts chapter 2 and also in Joel. We all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. There's a spiritual perception through an imagination that's submitted to him. And again, it's about his character. It's not, does he have brown eyes? Does he have green eyes? No, 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 no. Doesn't matter. He has them all. He's created us all. Love, care, compassion, his holy power, they do matter. Okay, so let's get to the final takeouts this morning. Are you still awake? Say amen. What are you confessing? What stories are you telling? And what images are you using? As a Christian, you are called to take authority in your life through all of those things. So let's take them out. Number one this morning, assess yourself. Would you say it with me so I know you're awake? Assess yourself. What are the words you're speaking? What are the internal words and thoughts? Take time also to assess the mental images that you allow to be in your mind. You know, if you have a bad dream, uh, and sometimes God speaks to people through dreams as well, but you need to discern that carefully. Um, But maybe you need to wake up and you get a picture of the light of Jesus Christ and of the angels of the Lord just filling that whole mental space in your mind. Maybe when you come in next Sunday morning, you begin to, to, to pray, Holy Spirit, move in this house, prepare the worship, prepare the word, and you begin to maybe see just an image of God's light and glory flooding this house. I challenge you to engage your words and the images. What are you imagining? What are you allowing to be in your mind? 
When you're praying for someone who's sick and in hospital or at home, pray to see them as you last remember them in a healthy state. Pray that as well. The words of healing says that we are to pray for the sick, but also imagine the sick being well. As I prayed for this young man this morning, Sean or Shane, Sean, I imagined him being whole and healthy. I don't even know what he looks like. I have no clue what his, his, what he, I don't know where he wears. I don't know what his ethnicity, I know nothing about him culturally or economically or whatever. I know he lives in the neighborhood. I had an image of him being whole, healthy, standing upright. When you pray and you begin to engage the words and the thoughts, it changes your experience of faith. I I feel like some of you just aren't getting this, but this is so important. It's so simple, but it's so powerful and it's so often overlooked. Assess yourself. Take time to disconnect from the phone and the screens to develop holy imagination. Assess yourself. And then after your assessment this morning, or maybe later this afternoon, what have I been just letting willy-nilly through my mind? Give it to the Lord. Walk in grace. Nobody's perfect. But then begin to do these practices. Practice confession. Not just of sins. We need to get more real with our stuff and our garbage if we want real freedom, of course. But not just of sins, but also who you are becoming in Christ. I challenge you to, to read over these out loud, all 90 once a day for the next five days. I challenge you. I I lay it down on the table as a challenge of the 90 confession of who you are in Christ. For some of you, you don't have a devotional life. Here's a great way to start. And you may get curious about some of those passages to read the context as well and how they apply to the community and how they apply to you individually. Practice confession. The second takeout this morning is, or the third, rather, assess yourself, practice confession, practice imagining Jesus, an image of him. Maybe start with the symbol that's become highly domesticated with the cross that even Baptists feel safe enough to put in a church. Get an image of the cross. Somebody just cleared their throat with a little more oomph than necessary, right? (laughs) But begin imaging him, imagining him in your mind. This is scriptural, setting your eyes on Jesus, the imagery of the Psalms all throughout the New Testament. These things matter in terms of our experience of faith. It is a faculty that the God has given you in your mind's eye. So finally, the last things to say about takeouts, you want to go deeper with this. There's some great books that I would recommend. I'm a reader. Most of these are available on audiobook as well, but Seeing is Believing, Experiencing Jesus Through Imaginative Prayer by Greg Boyd is a great book on this. talks about some of the ancient church practices. You Are What You Love, Little More Heady, written uh, James K.A. Smith, a charismatic reform guy in Michigan. You Are What You Love. He talks about how we reorder the desires of our heart. We assume our desires are just what they are. That's the taken, the givenness of the world. That's a lie. Your desires can be shaped and formed and changed. How do you do that? He talks about the power of worship secular rituals and rituals in the church and how they shape us and help give us pushback against the things of the world. And this one is a broader theme book, but a lot of good stuff. And I'm actually going to come back to it more here in our church, but Evangelism in a Skeptical World by a guy named Sam Chan. He talks a lot about uh, how our stories and communicating the gospel in a post-Christian, post-modern culture, what does that mean? And he talks a lot about this use of story and art and why that's a part of uh, one method or one reason, one, one way that we can engage our world. So consider waiting on the Lord for a filling of the Spirit as well. And I, I'll add one more here by your takeouts. Assess yourself, practice confession, practice imagining Jesus, 
Consider some other resources, but finally also consider some of the gifts of the Spirit that take you out of normal. As you know, I have a charismatic background, but I would challenge you to consider asking the Lord to give you the gift of speaking in tongues. It's not needed. It's a gift. It's a grace gift. You're not saved with this gift. You're filled with the Spirit at conversion. But it is a gift that really challenges the authority of language. If you think about what the secular professor told us this morning about linguistic relativity, the idea that our languages shape our realities as well as our realities, uh, that, that they really do shape how we perceive around us. Why would God give a gift that utterly dethrones this concept other than to empower us in a way completely outside of our circumstance? And that's what the gift is for, for empowerment, for building a person up. Consider all of these things today. All right, stand with me and let's pray. End of series, you made it through. I saved some of the hardest stuff for last. Look at your neighbor and said, we made it. We're going to jump into a verse-by-verse next Sunday, and then during the summer, we're going to do one-off topical sermons. Uh, we'll be working more through John, but then we'll do some topical sermons under a series that I'm going to call Under the Rug, things that we sweep under the rug. Uh, and so I'm excited to address some of those things, and I'll have my suitcase packed every time I preach one of those. So, um, but yeah, we'll, we'll get into that as well and have some guests scheduled and more Q&As as well. Um, but this is important stuff. Christian communication basics for Christians. We need to learn, use our mouth, use our images for the kingdom. Let me pray. Father, thank you for what you're doing here at Pilgrim. Thank you for each person that came out on this beautiful Sunday. Because as much as we experience your glory in creation and your glory in our work and in our family and all of that, we know that in the gathered community there is a unique gift of grace that's there that you've promised when we gather in your name. The tree will only get us so far. The work will only get us so far. The family will only do so much. But all of those things can become idols if we don't put you at the center and the new family that you're creating in each messy local church. So continue your work in us that we might confess, we might visualize, we might imagine in prophetic and holy ways. In Jesus' name, amen.